Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karin Kukkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Professor Raiko Auerstahl, Professor in Japanese Studies at the University of Oslo. And our topic is emotions and affect in Japanese literature. And I'd like to start by asking you about, yes, the particular relevance of emotions in literature, but also, of course, uh, for your work. Uh, what is it that is so fascinating about studying these things? Yes, well, thank you for in your introduction. In the context of Japanese literature, I think this renewed interest in emotion um, in recent decades is a very welcome trend uh, because emotions have always played an extremely important role in Japanese uh, literary aesthetics, starting in the Heian period, 10th century. The tale of Genji is a very famous and good example, which is full of powerful emotions. Aristocratic men and women were very easily moved to tears in these And falling days. in love all the time. Yeah, they were falling in love, they were crying, and they have absolutely no reservations about crying in front of others because tears was a sign of your refined emotional sensibility in a way. It probably has to do with the Buddhist-inspired um, aesthetics uh, of appreciating Emotional ups and downs connected to the transiency of life, which brings suffering to everyone. But life is suffering, full of suffering. So the most important thing is to come to terms with them mm -hmm. rather than avoid them. So would that mean that if you have emotions and if you can express them, that, that is a way of showing that you're alive? Yeah, you're alive. And another thing uh, is that uh, I think... Coming to terms, in the process of coming to terms with your emotions, you start writing self-narratives, actually, mm. because that is thought of as having therapeutic or meditative value for you as a person. So uh, writing poetry or diary that was supposed to be therapeutic, and it was very much encouraged in the Heian period. And is this something that you still see in Japanese literature yes. in uh -huh. the 20th century or today? Yes, definitely. We might come back to that when we talk about the narrative, the modernization of Japanese literature and the modern novel. Mm. But the emotional aspect, therapeutic aspects of self-narratives had a definitely impact on the ways in which Japanese authors try to incorporate Western influences in the Meiji period, which was the beginning of modern period. Mm. Yeah. So, so this was a time when uh, Japan opened itself up to right. the after, Western world? Yeah, after 200 years of self-isolation. In 1868, the modernization process started and everyone was frantically trying to modernize everything, you know, including literature, and trying to catch up with the West, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I guess when we talk about emotions and my research, I am very much interested in this Meiji author called Natsume Soseki, who wrote this very canonical novel called Kokoro. Soseki is almost as canonical as Ibsen for Norwegians, I mm. would imagine. And Kokoro is 
probably comparable to um, Ibsen's Doll's House. Okay. And in, in what way was? Uh... Well, um, it had a very strong moral impact. But maybe I should say a few words about what is yeah. uh, about what Kokoro is about. To make it very simple, Kokoro is about two male friends who compete with each other um, to win the love of the same woman, with a tragic consequence that the one who loses takes his own life, giving the other terribly guilty conscience, so much so that the other one, too, takes his own life. So two dead men, <laughs> leaving this poor woman all alone. And it is, of course, the latter who atones for his so-called betrayal of his friend, who becomes a tragic hero of the novel. I, of course, omit the details, but there are certain things in the narrative that suggest that the protagonist, who takes his life at the end of the novel, he was not being very fair to the other friend. He um, asked for... Um, this lady's hand behind his back, so to speak. So he is sort of suffering from guilty conscience. And this whole narrative is full of um, emotions, affects, ugly feelings, jealousy, resentment, rivalry, you know, and whatnot. Mm. It sounds like the perfect setup for yeah. big emotional drama. Yeah. Right. Can you describe a little bit what, I mean, what does this look like in Kokoro? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, Kokoro... As far as I understand, it means heart. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it refers to an emotional place. But where right. else do we... Um... Yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, we were talking about it a little while ago, about how Kokoro actually strikes the Western reader as not very dramatic. Mm -hmm. And it's not sentimental by mm. any means. And uh, I guess the part that everyone talks about is the last part called Testament, in which this protagonist. He regrets that he had been mean to his friend who had committed suicide a long time ago. And uh, he starts sort of describing, I mean, he starts giving us a very detailed and vivid account of his this emotional landscape prior to this friend's death. And of course, after his death, you know, how traumatic it was. And uh, so, so this landscape, this emotional landscape is, uh, at least to me, the strength of the novel lies there. Mm. But interestingly enough, many conservative literary critics read it in a very different way, not paying too much attention to this, these emotional movements in the last testament part. I think many conservative Japanese uh, readers, especially male critics, read it as a moral guidebook almost, you know, mm -hmm. how not to behave. And some of these conservatives, with a, especially with a nationalistic bent, you know, praise this novel as a timely criticism of modern egotism disguised as American individualism, which suited their agenda very well. So I guess what is fascinating about Kokoro is that uh, the striking variations of its reception. So my reading is not very canonical, I would say, but there is gaps and rooms in the text, which makes it possible to read in many different ways. So there are the emotions of the things that are going on between the two protagonists. Mm -hmm. And then you talked about this emotional landscape mm -hmm. of one of the protagonists, who is the narrator, and yeah. to, through whom we, we get access uh, to the story. Yeah. And then in the last bit, you talked about 
the responses of uh, critics. Yes. And it seems these are also uh, sort of emotional. Yes, well, emotional, I guess. Uh, these male critics were, I guess, looked at the protagonist as the paragon of moral virtue, major moral virtue. Sort mm -hmm. of Can you describe that a little? Well, you know, this maybe this was written at a time when Japan had just modernized itself, uh, so to speak. And the author, Soseki, was born in the second year of the Meiji period, which means that he belongs to the last generation of the Meiji intellectuals who received very conservative, classical Chinese Confucian mm. uh, education as a kid, as a child, right? But as he grew up uh, and um, in college, he was... He received very Western education and he uh, ended up becoming a professor of English literature. So he was sort of, there were a tug of war in a way, emotionally, I think, in, in the author himself uh, about um, the new, many new intellectual ideas, but his emotional disposition, which was formed in his childhood, maybe did not agree with everything he was learning so this gap between mm. mind and body is really materializes itself in the protagonist's struggle to cope with different streams of emotions. And one thing I should probably mention is that uh, it's in the Meiji period, there are, it's a time of drastic change, of course. And many things were changing and um, uh, maybe most important for reading of Kokoro is that uh, sexual mores customs practice that have to do with marriage and courting were changing. The ideology of love was imported to uh, Japan, very Christianity, I mean, Christian inspired. So, so you, you know, you have to have love in marriage. That was a pretty exotic mm -hmm. idea for many of these intellectuals uh, who were used to, I mean, arranged marriage most of the time. And, and uh, so senseis, I mean, the, the protagonist's effort to court this woman and, and to sort of achieve this love marriage was prevented or, you know, hindered by many Confucian social restraints that did not make it possible for them to speak up openly about their feelings. So the matter of heart, he says famously, was not supposed to be a man's domain. And he wonders if it had something to do with the lingering sentiment from the, from the Confucian uh, upbringing that he received. Mm. And he is talking, of course, to this younger narrator who has received completely different education or more Western education. And it's kind of interesting that the Kokoro was written in 1914, but, you know, the, the elder, uh, the protagonist, talks about the present age with re relative freedom so for him, it was had become much more freer in terms of sexual morals too. So there are signs of changes all mm. over the place, and that gets then integrated into this this narrative that yeah dramatizes a, a conflict between what seems to me, on the one hand, something that you feel, and then mm. on the other hand, the different sort of social categories that you need to put your feelings into. Yeah, is that right? I mean. Or you can say that the feelings that you were, spontaneous feelings that you had, were restrained because of the gendered codes of behavior mm -hmm. that they had to follow. And uh, 
and men were not supposed to talk about feelings, and women were not supposed to be outspoken. And uh, this, this coded gendered behavior is really prominent in the novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this lady who both men fell in love with, uh, she is not given an opportunity at all to express her feelings. She just laughs. She just blushes and laughs. That was the the standard kind of um, behavior that uh, the young women mm. did, uh, I think, uh, was a comment that uh, the protagonist makes at one point. And this is a way of sort of safely giving vent to something that you might be feeling, but there is a very clear uh, protocol for... Right, exactly. Yeah. How you can express it. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that's something that's really changed? I mean, we were talking about Genji earlier mm-hmm. and how emotions are expressed very strongly. Yeah, well, that's true. Yes, yes. I mean, the um, emotional, I mean, sec- sexual sort of um, practice, morals, changed drastically in the Meiji period. I mean, in the modern period, Heian is, it was much freer sexual socialization was of course there were protocols of course and there were differences between men and women but it was much freer in a way there was no Victoria moral about you know sticking to one man uh, for the rest of your life or Genji sticking to one woman yeah right, he spends exactly. a lot of time with many different women yeah. in the book I mean I guess this um, notion that you have to have both sex and love, that love and sex have to coincide. And that's that's when you have a happy marriage. That was a very exotic notion then. And it was almost tragic that many Japanese intellectuals tried to follow that new new protocol, which didn't really agree with how they were brought up. Mm. So the way in which you've talked about these emotions and how they relate themselves to, yeah, let's say cultural or social protocols. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That seems to be something that is also very much to do with the kind of stories that you can tell about yourself. I mean, if you're a man in um, a Soseki novel, mm-hmm. you, you can't talk about yourself in terms of the love that you feel, or if you do, that leads to a lot of problems, it seems. Mm-hmm. Well, except in a letter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so in a way, uh, a letter about testament was written in a form of a letter. Mm-hmm. And you notice that uh, in these early modern novels, the narrators are often taciturn, very minimalistic. They don't really comment on other people's feelings. And it, it almost seems like you had to write letters to be able to really give free rein to your emotions. Otherwise, there were so many social protocols and restraints that made it unnatural. Mm. Uh, so there are certain genres where you can do that. Mm-hmm. And another exception is this self-narrative, autobiographical mm-hmm. novels, in which you're supposed to be relentlessly honest with your own emotional, often unflattering details in your emotional life. But that's that's after the modernization, right? I mean... It's a very, I mean, this is a very big topic. The Japanese encounter with Western novels. Japanese author or authors were very uh, preoccupied with the notion of modernizing literature because they, they felt that uh, uh, literature 
that they had was too superficial, lacked realistic depth, and uh, too moralistic. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are all kinds of ideas and uh, isms that flooded Japan at the time. But it so happened that when this most urgent and acute need to modernize the literature in the 1880s was felt, the reigning mode of literature was thought to be realism. Mm -hmm. So this lack of realistic depth, they were really preoccupied with that, how to achieve realistic depth. And for them, the technique of omniscient narration, third-person narration in past tense, was Mm -hmm. a literary instrument to give a sense of depth to their narratives. But they found out that it was very difficult to do in Japanese because there are certain grammatical features in Japanese uh, that makes it, that encourages omissions of subject and object in a sentence, as well as the use of dramatic presence. It means that the distinction between first and third person narrative and between narrated and non-narrated poles of discourse is not very easy to maintain in Japanese. Mm. So the narrator and the character readily merge into a single voice, shifting focus from the narrator to the character's thought is extremely easy. So free indirect speech, celebrated in modernist writers such as Virginia Woolf and James Joyce, it's almost the rule in Japanese mm. rather than the exception. So they were actually the more modern ones. Right, right. So so they ended up writing modernistic prose mm-hmm. uh, rather than realistic prose, which is kind of uh, funny to think about in retrospect. But the question of the impact of the modern novel as a whole in Japan and what narrative forms that eventually came out of it, we also need to go back to this Japanese traditional aesthetics because Japanese authors absorbed, of course, Western narrative techniques in a way that suited their native or Japanese sensibility as a writer. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I have referred to as the focus on... um, Emotions and self-narrative, of course, did have an impact on how they incorporated these Western techniques. And I think maybe one thing I should mention in their traditional preferences for self-narratives is that is their skepticism toward fiction and design. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's not a coincidence in a way that the I novels and autobiographical novels became extremely popular. And the focus on emotions that were traditionally important in aesthetics merged with this self-narratives. Mm-hmm. So the autobiographical novel in Jap- uh, modern Japanese poets is very much focused on the emotions of the protagonist who looks, who reminds us of the author, and not not very focused on other people. Yeah. But, so there's no dividing out of different sort of yeah, emotional. Right. So I was just thinking that the um, Japanese uh, I novel, autobiographical novels, is very different from Karlova Knausgård's novels, for example, which is much more focused on dynamic personal relationships within a larger group than mm. just on one person. So you don't respond so much to yeah, another person as you look to yourself. Right, to... yeah, very introspective, very uh, strong focus on your emotional movements, yours. Yeah. yeah. And and you're trying to, in other words, trace these ups and downs that you were talking about uh, yeah. from the Buddhist tradition? or 
Uh, well, I don't think they really think of it as Buddhist mm-hmm. uh, now, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I, I, I would imagine it's not unrelated, this um, therapeutic meditative effect of self-scrutiny. Mm. is very much ingrained in their sensibility, I think. And what do you think? So I can see why an author would want to write about themselves and investigate their inner states. What do you think makes Japanese readers? Why are they interested in that? Well, that's a very good question because many Western readers think they are pretty boring. You know, because why <laughs> do you want to write, you know, read about someone else's diary? Maybe uh, that is a very Western question. Yeah, it might be because they are extremely popular even now. Japanese self-narratives tend to be boring in the eyes of Western readers because there is so much focus on one person and digressions. There's uh, hardly any plot. I mean, very... But they would probably say that the real life doesn't have a clear plot Mm -hmm. and real life is uneventful. So literature should not be more eventful than the real life. So they wouldn't like uh, Kokoro? Well, Kokoro is kind of um, uneventfully narrated, Mm -hmm. at least until this letter. Yeah, I mean, Uh, you don't see it coming uh, when you read the beginning. It's it's very, um, yeah, restrained. Subdued and restrained, Yeah. yeah. Maybe this would be an opportunity to give your Western listeners uh, a recommendation. Yes. um, Soseki's Kokoro. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, he has written many other uh, novels. Three-Cornered World, uh, which is considered to be a haiku novel. A haiku novel? Haiku novel, yeah. Uh, What does that look like? Absolutely no plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very impressionistic. It's about this man who um, goes up in the mountains and... That's a lot of thinking, and there's hardly any, anything dramatic that happens. But it's beautifully written. And um, contemporary writers, uh, yeah. I have many recommendations. My students like Ekuni Kaori's Twinkle Twinkle. Akitaba Ryunosuke is another traditional, fairly traditional writer who has written many short stories in the Grove. Kurosawa Akira's famous uh, film called Rashomon is mm-hmm. mostly based on In the Grove. Tawada Yoko's A Mystery, which has just come out in Norwegian, called Send the Bud. Murakami Haruki, of course, I tend mm. to forget He's a about. big star. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Um, I like Hard Boy Wonderland and the End of the World. I, am, I have to admit I'm not an enthusiastic Murakami fan, but he has written some some good novels. Mm. Mm. So that gives us a whole uh, advent calendar of Yeah, Kawakami Mieko's Heaven, mm-hmm. uh, which um, my earlier student, Norwegian translator, is working on, on it. It will come out in Norwegian probably next year. It's really good. We shall uh, yeah. keep an eye out. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you very much for this inspiring conversation about emotions, affects, the uneventfulness of autobiographical narratives mm-hmm. um, and uh, the long history of Japanese literature and uh, its emotional engagements. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. And thanks also to everyone uh, who's listening to the LC podcast. Our next episode will air in two weeks. Until then. <laughs>